Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. Before we jump into our next episode, I wanted to point out something pretty fun that happened recently. I got to be the guest on a podcast. So I was on the other side of the microphone. I was invited to be on a podcast called The Happy Doc Podcast. And The Happy Doc Podcast is part of a website called thehappydoc.com. The Happy Doc Podcast and the website that it's associated with, thehappydoc.com, was started in part by a physician named Neil Desai, who has been one of the biggest fans of Explore the Space. So it was really fun to get to participate in something that he's working on. And the podcast is hosted by a psychiatry resident named Taylor Brana. And it was just a blast to be on the show. It was a blast to be a part of the mission of the Happy Doc podcast. In talking with them, it really crystallized just how far we've come on Explore the Space. We are 60 plus episodes in. We're coming up on our three-year anniversary and the the network of episodes that we've been able to put together here is just really compelling. And so it was a lot of fun to reflect on all of those things and to get to talk about what we do here and how all of these various pieces of work connect. It was also amazing to be a part of another physician-run podcast. Three years ago, there was just a handful. The numbers continue to grow and grow and grow, and the Happy Doc podcast is just another reflection of that. So really enjoyed being a part of that show. Definitely check it out. If you go to thehappydoc.com, you will find the episode. And uh, I'm proud to say I think it's worth downloading and listening to. For those of you who are listening to Explore the Space for the first time on this episode or people who've been listening for a long time, you're always welcome and welcome back. Please take the opportunity to go on iTunes or whichever podcast downloading service you use. Leave us a review. Please share the word as well. Uh, You know, the podcast continues to grow. And it's just so much fun to watch that growth. And obviously the feedback that we get from people really helps drive this and keeps us moving forward, moving the the podcast in the right direction. So please feel free to leave those reviews. Please subscribe on iTunes. It really helps us out. Feel free to email me, mark at explorethespaceshow.com if you have feedback or questions or anything like that. So all that being said, thanks for listening. And here we go with the next episode. Welcome back to Explore the Space. My guest today is Dr. David Troxel. Dr. Troxel is a retired pathologist who serves as the medical director of the doctor's company. And the doctor's company is the largest physician-owned medical malpractice insurance company in the United States. And this is a really nice opportunity for us to dive into a topic that provokes a lot of emotions on both sides of the equation when we are talking about medical malpractice. It's something where we can all improve our understanding, we can all improve our sensitivity to the needs and wants of both physicians and the patients that they serve, and come to a, a, an increased understanding of what are we talking about when we think about medical malpractice, and how do we optimize the practice of medicines so that everyone gets the best possible care. Dr. Troxel, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Let's start at the very beginning because medical malpractice is something that everyone's heard of. When you go through medical school, it can range from something that everyone is scared to talk about to something that people are very open and proactive around learning, but we don't get a good sense of context. So let's start at the beginning Let's start at the place where we can learn a little bit about just the concept of it. Why does the idea of medical malpractice in the legal world even exist? 
Well, I think historically it exists because it's seen as a way of compensating a patient who has suffered uh, an adverse event, either uh, in the care of a physician or uh, another healthcare provider. And that's all well and good, but unfortunately, it turns out to be a rather inefficient way of accomplishing that. Nobody that I'm aware of disputes one for a moment that uh, an injured patient absolutely needs to have care and absolutely uh, in appropriate situations needs financial compensation to make up for perhaps lost work, a lost job, subsequent health care costs that are uh, a result of the initial injury. But what most people don't understand is that 80%, actually a little over 80% of all malpractice claims never end in a payment to the patient whatsoever. They do, however, result in a lot of expense costs to the malpractice insurance company to defend the claim. So what does it mean to say, well, not more than 80%, 82% end in no payment? What it means is that there was no substance to uh, the claim. Once it was looked into, reviewed by uh, independent experts, as well as reviewed by the plaintiff's experts and, of course, the insurance company experts, the conclusion was there was no uh, practice uh, event that was below the standard of care in medicine. And if there was, it did not uh, result in injury to the patient. That is, the the substandard event wasn't the cause of the patient's injury. It may have been a consequence of the disease course itself. So as we think about this, is the idea of medical malpractice, was it developed as almost like a consumer protective strategy? Obviously, in popular culture, there's all the stories about, you know, early days of medicine where there was a lot of kind of fly-by-night care. Is that the idea behind it, though, that it's a, sort of a place where patients, families can, can know that there is a, a, at least a tool for redress if there is an injury? Well, I don't. I, I don't think that was the causation of it. No, I think it. I think it certainly has that uh, overtone to it. But my guess is, and I'm speculating here, that in its uh, origins, it was probably uh, a creation of the legal system, much like uh, it is if you're injured in an auto accident. Yeah, you know, but both are at play. Clearly, mm-hmm. the problem is the 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 costs of the system are so high that they adversely, uh, they have two adverse effects. One is it really raises the cost of medicine because every physician has to have malpractice insurance and the cost of that insurance vary by the specialty uh, you practice in. For example, if you're a pathologist like I was, you don't often get uh, sued and so the cost of malpractice insurance is quite low. On the other hand, if you're a neurosurgeon, where you can expect to be sued on average once every year or two, the cost of malpractice insurance are, is very high and obviously adds considerably to the cost of neurosurgical care. And unfortunately, the patient is the real big loser because even in, even in cases where it's decided that, yes, the, pa- the doctor did practice below the standard of care and, yes, it did cause the injury, the award uh, is divided, uh, not evenly, but about a third of it uh, on average goes to the uh, legal system, to the attorneys who uh, represented the patient, and only about two-thirds goes to the patient. So 
my biggest comment and concern about it is I just think it's an extremely inefficient way of accomplishing a desirable goal. So that's the that's the tension, right? There is a desirable goal, as I think you've pointed out correctly, that when there is an episode that is felt to be below the standard of care, that there should be a mechanism for a patient to, you know, be able to be made whole in whatever way they can. But it seems like we've had an uh, an evolution that probably went in a direction that may not have been intended. Can you, you've been doing this for a while. Can you kind of track that evolution over time that's brought us to this point where the costs of the world of medical malpractice are extraordinarily high to negative effect? Most cases that come forward, as you pointed out, don't come to uh, a place where the, the patients who brought the claim get any sort of reward. How did we get to that evolution? Is there is there a trend line that over the course of your career in medical malpractice that you can identify, or has it been more of a an ad hoc evolution? It's been more in the ad hoc category. Ironically, in the last uh, four or five years, uh, there's been a decline in the frequency of malpractice claims. And that's true for every state. It's true for every specialty. And frankly, no one knows why. And you, as you can imagine, uh, insurance companies are very anxious to understand why. Uh, but it's not clear at all. Could it be the advances that we've seen in patient safety? Well, possibly. But on the other hand, this was almost a precipitous event. It just suddenly went from a high claim frequency level. In one year, it dropped about 20% and has stayed there ever since. And to make this even more interesting, the same thing has happened in other forms of liability insurance. Unfortunately, even though we're seeing fewer claims, which is a good thing, the cost of the claims continues to go up. So uh, every year, in, at least in medical malpractice, the total costs go up. Well, it's averaging now between 4 and 5% per year. So it's an inflationary environment when there is a settlement or when there is a case that goes to trial. And by the way, I, I didn't mention it, but I think uh, your listeners would be interested in knowing that when even when cases go to trial, the juries find in favor of the physician over 80% of the time. So that kind of takes us to the other part of this. When we're talking about costs, obviously there's the financial impact in, in, in a multitude of different directions. But there's also the cost in terms of emotional strain, stress, and anxiety, both for the side of the patient who has a concern, has a grievance, has an issue that they need to feel heard, and also for the physician. And so is there a way that we can even begin to wrap our arms around the impact of those costs, the what it takes out of a physician, out of an organization when there is a claim that falls in that 80% category where there's felt to be nothing to move forward on or to the patient on any part of it where there is a reward. Does that make them feel whole or when there is no reward, how do they have the, the, the strength, the fortitude, the support to move on with their life? Well, to some extent that's muted, I think, because of two facts. Number one, after an adverse event occurs, on average, it's about three to four years before a malpractice claim is filed. 
once the process begins after a claim, which is a demand for payment, at least that's how the doctor's company defines it. Once a claim is filed, uh, then a lot of things happen. But again, it's usually another two to three years before the claim is resolved. So these are these this event really occupies a lot of time, probably on average uh, six or seven years for the patient and for the for the physician, maybe three or four years. And I can speak more directly to the physician because uh, there's a lot of data on that. And it's devastating to most physicians when they get a malpractice claim. Uh, I mean, they've tra- trained their whole life to provide good health care. They all recognize that sometimes complications arise or errors can be made, but it can uh, really be, uh, uh, in- it can really interfere with the subsequent practice of the physician to the point where uh, they become uh, less uh, productive than they were before, less functional than they were before, or they change their, their practice patterns uh, in, in, in an overreaction attempting to minimize the likelihood of something like that ever happening again. Many, many malpractice insurance companies, such as the doctor's company, actually have seminars that we put on for our physicians who are undergoing claim or under in the midst of a malpractice claim. If you ever talk to a doctor who's had a claim, they'll tell you it was one of the most upsetting things uh, in their career, if not in their life. And and I'm not uh, uh, downplaying the effect on the patient. Obviously, the, the results can be devastating. But it still comes down to my way of thinking, and that is that we could have much better system that is fairer to everyone, especially to the patient, if we didn't go through this very expensive and often unsuccessful way of adjudicating uh, an injured patient's claim. But another consequence of the current medical legal system is that it adds considerably to the cost of health care. Now, there's quite a literature on this uh, regarding de- so-called defensive medicine and uh, some of it comes out of universities and claims that costs are minimal. I think those studies are faulty. And the, con- the, the, re- the fact is, and, and, and you and I know this as physicians, that a lot of tests are ordered, a lot of MRI scans are ordered, really to protect the physician in the event that a patient injury has occurred, even though they may not think it has, because if they miss a diagnosis, or a diagnosis is delayed, it's very apt to result in a uh, malpractice claim. For example, virtually any patient today who goes into an emergency room after uh, a a head trauma, whether it's uh, the consequence of a car accident or falling down at home or whatever, is is going to have a, a brain CT scan, if not a brain MRI very, very expensive tests costing in the thousands of dollars. Even though the physician seeing the the patient may not think there's really a need for it. That is, there's no evidence of neurologic injury, patient uh, functioning well, speaking well, thinking well. Why do they do that? Because they know if they're wrong and maybe one time in a hundred or two times in a hundred, their clinical judgment or their clinical exam will be wrong and they didn't order that test, they'll get sued and possibly successfully. So, so it, it really, it's a society pays for all of this indirectly. 
That is a huge challenge to overcome. And it's obviously something that, as you point out, I think is becoming more and more discussed and more and more thought about. And that is a big part of what we have to unspool. How would you describe, given that the doctor's company works with so many physicians, how would you describe in general physicians' understanding to navigate what happens when there is an adverse event in terms of how they're able to communicate around it and try to mitigate it the best that they can? Well, we've been, we as, as well as others have, have gone in two different directions. Um, one, one I'm sure you're very familiar with is the movement that's been ongoing now for at least a decade of being transparent when, a, when, a, when a, uh, uh, either a, a, an accident has occurred or an adverse event has occurred. And I mean by that, speaking with the, with the patient, speaking with their family, explaining why you know, a diagnosis was missed, explaining why a wrong diagnosis was made, explaining why uh, the pharmacy released the wrong medication or the wrong medication or, or the right medication, the wrong uh, dose, and offering to help in any way, reassuring the patient that any, at the very least that any cost associated with will be taken care of both by the physician who may well uh, you know, drop their charge or the hospital who may well uh, drop their charge. But the main goal here is to be open because we all know that what drives many malpractice suits is anger. That is, the patient, uh, something happened in the hospital, for example, or something happened in the doctor's office. The patient's aware of it. You know, they know things didn't turn out right or as, uh, or as they anticipated. And yet no one's told them anything. No one's, exp no one's even apologized. So apology, transparency, disclosure is a very important uh, uh, movement, which we are very supportive of and have actually put on workshops to educate our own physicians about and encourage all of the physicians we insure to participate in disclosure programs if they practice in a uh, practice environment where they're available and increasingly uh, they are available. On the other hand, we also, our, our, our claims specialists are also well-trained uh, and very experienced in how to assuage the uh, anxiety, sometimes the guilt, uh, always the frustration, sometimes the anger of, uh, an insured physician feels when they're uh, sued and when they don't feel that they did anything wrong at all, where they felt they practice well within the standard of, of care in their specialty. And we respect that if they, uh, if we think it's a suit, for example, to settle for one of a variety of reasons, they, they have to approve of that. Uh, we will never take a case to trial that the page, if the doctor says, no, I don't want that to happen. I, I mean, if we wanted to settle it, for example, and go to trial and uh, the doctor says, no, I insist on uh, a rigorous defense. I do not want this case settled because I know I did nothing wrong. I know I practice within the patient of care. We respect that. We honor that, even though we think that it was probably the wrong decision in terms of how the outcome of the case will, will play out. So uh, all of these things go on, and uh, it, there's a, it's, not a cold, it's not like having a car accident where you, you call your, uh, your insurance agent 
and you never hear another word about it until you get a, a an email or a letter in the mail, you know, six weeks, two months right. later, right. telling you how it came out. These insured doctors are in, you know, you know, frequent contact with our claims people for the duration of the claim, which is, you know, commonly two or three years, sometimes four years. And after the claim has resolved, uh, we always, we, 100% of the time, we send out a form to the doctor and ask them to evaluate their experience. And then we review those annually and make changes as needed in order to make the whole process less stressful and, and more user-friendly. So if we think about this idea then, too, of, of making changes and improving process, one of the other things that I think is is clear is we should look at mistakes in medicine that we recognize mistakes can happen uh, and that there are things that can be missed or that, you know, errors can be made, that we can aggregate those and we can look and see what things happen commonly and what things we should be paying more attention to and how we can improve processes around that. And that gets to something that I think the doctor's company has done a nice job of, which is looking at closed claims. And so I wonder if you might talk to us a little bit about some of the insights drawn from the doctor's company's closed claim study in terms of informing ways that our systems around patient care can get better specifically for injuries and you know syndromes that can be elusive or can be hard to detect or can be misdiagnosed. Well, you're right. In fact, uh, one of my main jobs as medical director is to uh, review closed claims uh, by both by specialty and by type of diagnostic error. And since we are the largest uh, physician-owned insurance company in the United States, we have the largest claims database. I, I would use maybe two ex- examples. One, uh, one is very uncommon situation called, or illness called spinal epidural abscess. Uh, most doctors in practice have never seen one, or if they have, they've seen one. And if they've seen them, they're probably emergency room physicians or neurologists or neurosurgeons. We did a study several years ago of closed claims in hospital medicine, that is amongst internists who practice hospital medicine and are known as hospitalists. And we were surprised to see that there was a significant number of claims for missing the diagnosis of spinal epidural abscess. I, as a pathologist, I, I knew a fair amount about it because I used to teach pathology to medical students at uh, UC Berkeley. But I didn't expect the average physician to know very much about it, maybe only to remember the name, but not remember very much else. So we took the results of that data shared it with the, uh, the National uh, Specialty Society for Hospital Medicine, gave them the results, told them they could use them in any way they please, but encouraged them to publish them in their, uh, in their medical journal, which they did, encouraged them to uh, give uh, short courses on it at their national meetings, which they did, and uh, between the two of us, because I also wrote about it in, a, in a, a, a quarterly publication we put out and mailed to our insureds, we've seen a, a, a gradual decline in the incidence of spinal epidural abscess merely by making people aware of it and reminding them, since they probably haven't thought about it in many years, uh, of how it may present and when they should specifically think about it. 
Another example would be claim. I started all this when uh, even before I worked with the doctor's company by reviewing their claims in pathology. I was one of the practicing pathologists who they asked to review claims in pathology. And as I mentioned earlier, pathologists don't get a lot of claims. So when I looked at a large number of uh, pathology claims over a long period of time, I was really struck by the fact that the most common reason pathologists get sued is for missing a diagnosis of melanoma, malignant melanoma. And again, that's a well-recognized difficult diagnosis because there are a lot of uh, uh, variants of melanoma which look so benign, unless you're seeing a fair number of them, you may not recognize the subtleties that lead you to recognize it as being malignant. So again, I worked closely with the College of American Pathologists, published in uh, three different uh, pathology journals the results of this study. There was great interest in it by the uh, profession, and I was asked to speak at three different societies' national meetings on it and did so. And about seven years ago, I thought it would be interesting to see if this had any effect on the claims against pathologists involving melanoma. And I looked at a large number of claims, and much to my surprise, the incidence had dropped from being very high to very low. Um, so this is an example, I think, of the value of reviewing closed claims and seeing uh, what uh, physicians in a specific specialty are getting sued for, sharing that data with them, and uh, sharing it with their national uh, medical societies, because uh, I can assure you, every physician wants to improve the quality of their practice. Every physician, when they make a mistake, wants to know why and how and what they can do to prevent it from happening again. So you're right, sharing this information is very, very important. In my opinion, probably one of the most important things uh, we do here at the doctor's company. So it's interesting, though, because you point out that when you bring this information forward, that there's that thirst for knowledge that we want to get better, we want to improve. If we make a mistake, we want to figure out how we make sure it doesn't happen again. When you bring forward data and you frame it around medical malpractice, do you find that that makes people more thirsty for the information? Do you find that it makes them maybe a little bit resistant because they're afraid or they're, it makes them nervous or no change, no impact, yeah. they, they still want information? No, clearly it makes them much, uh, much more uh, interested in learning about it. Now, oh, and yeah. the reason is, if you go to, uh, and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense at all, but if you ask the average doctor if they'd like to go to a lecture on risk management, most don't. I mean, they're busy. They, they're seeing too many patients already for an hour. They don't have time to take away from their offices. And um, it seems like an abstract thing to talk about. On the other hand, if you say, we're going to give a, a noon lecture at the hospital day on uh, why uh, neurosurgeons get sued and review some claims with you, they are very interested because A, they don't want to get sued, <laughs> and B, uh, it's something they think that they'll, and they're correct, something that they, that some information they think they'll get that will be immediately applicable to what they do every day and reduce their risk. And by the way, if you reduce your risk and re reduce your claims, your costs of co insurance go way down because we're no different in that respect than other insurance companies. I mean, if you have 
too many car accidents, your premium goes up. But if you have too many medical accidents, your premium goes up as well. What is the mechanisms by which people find them? Obviously, the grassroots noon conference approach is a good one. The national meeting approach is a good one. What other resources are there for anybody, physician or non-physician, non, you know, someone who's not in healthcare but is just curious? What are the tools by which they can access this stuff? Well, the the other thing that's probably easiest, especially for non-physicians, and I, again, I'm only speaking for the doctor's company, we put all of this information on our website, and it's available to anybody, and encourage physicians to go there, uh, encourage, you know, I'm, I, I know for facts, plaintiff's lawyers even go there and look at it. When I uh, spend three months doing a closed claim study, and that's about what it takes to do one, uh, my interest is in getting the information out. I don't do these just uh, for my own curiosity. And the the offer we usually make, especially to national medical specialty societies, is look, we'll do the study. Or if you'd like to come in and do the study yourself, that's fine. And the only requirement is that you agree to share this information with your members. And as I mentioned earlier, get it published in your journals, and use it as part of your continuing medical education programs. And you know, for example, uh, about a year ago, the uh, American Society of Metabo Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery uh, wanted to come and review our claims as part of a study they were doing, a national study on, uh, on why, uh, how frequently do bariatric surgeons get sued. It used to be it was a very high risk specialty, and they, were, they suspected it was lower risk today uh, for a variety of reasons, including uh, improvement in the surgical technique. And it turned out they were correct. And we said, they, we said, fine, please, you know, come up here. We'll redact the claims. That is, take off the patient's names and the hospital names and the doctor's names. And you can sit down at our computers and stay as long as you want. Come here for as many days as you want. Review and collect the data just publish it. And they did. That sort of transparency, do you think that it is building a momentum that has a societal impact? And what I mean by that is, do you think that obviously there's a demand for this sort of information as you spelled out, and now we're moving to where we can make the information and what we learn more forward facing so that we can continually get better? Do you feel like that impact is starting to happen. And if you feel like it's starting to happen, how do we track it? How do we notice a change? Well, I think it would be, we can certainly track, well, one, the obvious way for me to track it is to look and see what happens subsequently to the frequency of claims or the severity of claims in that particular specialty, sure, which sure. I, which I do. Uh, uh, and, and certainly there's data that's in the public venue of uh, claims frequency by specialty. Some of it is published uh, in the lay literature as well. For example, uh, we have shared uh, all of our claims data also with several independent uh, foundations that study this sort of thing, and they publish it on their own. They do the analysis and publish it. We don't have uh, any role in it whatsoever other than providing them with access to the claims data. And I think ultimately the best way of knowing if it's had an impact or the easiest way of, of get, collecting the, the, the metrics is to look at, at, at 
over a period of years and see if it made a difference in uh, the frequency of claims involving that specialty and involving that particular problem. If you don't see any change at all, uh, it would suggest to me that you're not having a very big impact. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, most of the time when I have followed up, I found that it does make a difference, sometimes strikingly so, sometimes less strikingly so, but still uh, striking in a statistically significant um, fashion. It feels like we're maybe in a transitional period where there's a lot of really positive momentum in terms of proactivity, in terms of education, in terms of transparency, not just for physicians to learn about places and you know clinical syndromes where they need to be more attentive and they need to make sure that their understanding is as good as it can be, but also from the side of understanding what to do when something happens, how to disclose it, how to talk about it. What's your sense, if you take the the high-level strategic view of the, the trajectory that we really as a society of healthcare providers and physicians and people who need care, people who interact with physicians and interact with big healthcare systems, what is the trajectory of that dynamic? Is it moving in a direction where you say, this is positive, this is good, or is it in a steady state? Or are you looking at it and saying, we need to, we need to adjust because we're not moving in the right direction? No, I, I'm actually very optimistic about it, and I think uh, I would put it in uh, a societal context. I think the there's clearly a movement that's uh, society-wide toward being more transparent about just about everything, and certainly medicine is part of that, and I'd like to think that we are uh, maybe even one of the few fields that started this with the disclosure of, of medical error movement, which began Oh, about 12 years ago and has really picked up steam so that now, uh, you know, a lot of major uh, hospital systems nationwide are using it. There is a organization that meets uh, frequently and is attempting to work out the, the, the details, which vary state by state because state laws vary uh, uh, state by state in terms of what you can disclose and what the consequence of disclosure is and whether or not it can be used against you in, in, in the court of law and so on and so forth. But still, the thrust is going forward, and it's often uh, characterized as part of the patient safety movement. And I think the patient safety movement is very much alive, and I think it's growing, and I think it is now uh, embraced by physicians, especially by young physicians. And uh, so I'm optimistic. I really am. Uh, I'm really very optimistic that we're using our, uh, our added, we're opening our attitudes to recognize uh, not only the risks that we face, but the dangers to uh, the patient uh, that can result from uh, a medical error. And, uh, I, and, and I think, you know, I think, I feel good about it. I think we're doing a real job of, of, of opening up and uh, talking about things just like you and I are today that not too many years ago, most physicians didn't want to uh, talk about. I think it's affirming that someone who can take that high level strategic view like you has that perspective. I think it hopefully can serve as motivation that we're on the right track and that the current efforts should be encouraged. They should be fueled. They should continue to be propagated because again, the whole goal is to provide the highest quality care every time. And if these are the techniques and the strategies to get us there, then that's the road that we need to stay on. I agree. 
Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. This was really informative and really, really interesting. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, I, I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, Dr. Troxel. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.